Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, we read the words of the Apostle Paul as he said that whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, the Hebrew writer is talking about the contrast between the old and the new things pertaining to the Old Covenant and the things that are now realized under the New Covenant. He says that the law, there in verse 1, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. And so, as we think about what both of these verses say, we understand that the Old Testament is valuable to us today, that there is much to be learned from it. And we understand also that many of the things contained in the Old Testament are shadows of the realities that we find described in the New. We're going to spend time this evening talking about the tabernacle and the subheading of our title there, as you see, is Shadows of the New. As we study the tabernacle, I think we're going to see that the design of God in that structure and in the service of that structure, which of course had its permanent realization in the temple, was designed to help us understand the realities of the church, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that he established by shedding his own blood. I would encourage you to have a sword drawn tonight, if you will. In other words, have your Bible out, because we're going to be having a combination of scriptures on the screen and ones that we're going to be turning to and reading together from our very own Bibles. Another passage that I wanted us to look at as we get started here is in Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to read the first six verses there. The Hebrew writer says, This is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, that is God said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So this passage kind of foreshadows a lot of what we're going to be talking about, kind of summarizes, if you will, what we want to dive into tonight. 
As we see here, the writer is talking about the tabernacle, the pattern of that Old Testament system, and he's talking about how Jesus has now realized the, the true version, if you will, of the things that were outlined there. Some might ask, well, what was the tabernacle? That's probably a good place to start in a study such as this. Sometimes we take for granted that people know what we're talking about when we use words that are found in the Bible, but maybe ones that we don't use all that much in our everyday language or conversation. Tabernacle is certainly a biblical word, and I can't remember the last time I used that word unless I was talking about the biblical tabernacle. So what was it? There's a couple passages that help us to understand, and then not only are we going to look at descriptions, but we're going to put a, an image of it up on the screen as well so we can visualize all of these things better. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, God is speaking. He says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. He's speaking to Moses here, speaking of the Israelites. According to all that I show you, God says, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Of course, that passage was referenced by the Hebrew writer in the, in the passage we'd read there a moment ago in Hebrews 8. So God says this is to be a, a sanctuary. This is to be a place where I'm going to physically dwell amongst my people. Now, as we think about that idea, we know, of course, that God is beyond physical structures. He doesn't need us to really build him a house to live in. Paul acknowledges that in Acts 17 and verse 24. He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So it almost maybe seems like a, a contradiction off the bat. You know, why would God uh, say that he needs this sanctuary? Why would he say that he needs this place to dwell if he indeed does not need men to build him a place to live in? We know God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. It's one of his characteristics. The psalmist describes that in Psalm 139 and verse 7. He asked the question, where can I go? from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I can't go over here and hide in this cave and expect that God is not going to be there or know where I am and what I'm doing. So what do we make of all that? Well, let's read some more. Again, in Exodus 25, verse 21, There, God again is speaking to Moses about this tabernacle and what the purpose of it would be and how it was to be designed. And he's specifically here talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which was to be contained in a section of the tabernacle. He says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. It's called the Ark of the Covenant because it contained the covenant the tables that were received by Moses from God. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. Notice that. So 
in the holiest of holies, in this most holy place, this section of the tabernacle, God is explaining, there above the mercy seat, I'm going to meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And so, uh, we start to see here that this was not something that God needed, per se. He does not require a physical dwelling place, but rather this was something, uh, again, a sanctuary where he would meet with man, specifically uh, the leadership of the Israelites, and that being primarily Moses. He would speak with him from within this holy structure. Now, also, I'd like to read the last portion of Exodus chapter 40. We're going to start in verse 34. Read down to the end of that chapter. So, in this 40th chapter, just so we understand the context, uh, it's explaining how that Moses uh, and the Israelites had finished building and uh, putting together this tabernacle as God had outlined it to be done. And they had gone through all of the ceremony that God had prescribed as acceptable in regards to those items. And so in verse 34, it says, The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all of their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey until the day that it was. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all of their journeys. So this was a place where God was to be honored, where God was to be served, where God was to be worshipped. And it was a physical structure that would allow the Israelites, their leadership, their priests, to focus on those things. And God would be with them and dwell with them as they followed those instructions. Now, you have on your handouts uh, this same image, which shows us the design, the physical design of the tabernacle complex. You can see there, uh, surrounding the inner tent, or inner structure, there was a courtyard that was also sectioned off uh, from the area around it, designated the boundaries of the overall structure, in other words. And there was a veil that would separate um, this courtyard from the outside, and that, of course, was the entrance and exit. The first thing that you would see as you walked inside that courtyard would be, as you can see there, the bronze altar. And what we're going to do as we go through this next section of the lesson, we're going to walk through 
kind of as we would go in that outside curtain or outside veil and proceed all the way into the holy place and then ultimately into the holy of holies. We're going to talk about each of the things we will encounter or would have encountered along the way and see if we can, of course, ultimately understand what each of these things means for us today as we think about, again, the fact that these were all a shadow of spiritual realities in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, all of this is detailed in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, and we're not going to read all that tonight. Uh, I know some of you maybe were sitting there thinking, well, this is going to take a while. Well, it is going to take a while, but <laughs> we're going to try and shorten it up if we can a little bit. Uh, by relying on you to read some of this material on your own uh, at a later time. I would encourage you to do that. So again, first of all, we, we would enter the tabernacle complex coming into this outer courtyard, which is highlighted there, rather obvious, I guess, as to what we're talking about. Uh, but that's detailed there in chapter 27, verses 9 through 19. And again, the first thing that we would come to would be this bronze altar. And that's detailed in Exodus 27, the first eight verses. Now, what would they have done on the altar? Well, this is where the sacrifices, the atonements for the sins of the people would be made. In Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 7, Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar. He's talking about this. Uh, this bronze altar that was there, first thing you saw when you came into the complex. Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now we know, and we're going to talk about, of course, how that once a year there was an atonement made for the sins of all the people. And that's detailed in Leviticus chapter 16, and I'll have that reference up later. Uh, but that was not the only time a sacrifice was made on this altar. Really, there were daily sacrifices being offered there. There was all kinds of different sacrifices that the people would bring based on things they may uh, have transgressed from day to day. But this is where those would all be offered. Now, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, of course, explains to us how that uh, these sacrifices, you know, what the purpose of them was. It tells us there that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And we don't have time to to get into a whole discussion about how sacrifice works. We've talked about that in the past. Uh, but this is where they would offer those, and the purpose, of course, again, was that that blood would make atonement for their sins. The Hebrew writer also mentions these things. In chapter 9, verse 22, he reminds us there that according to the law, the law of Moses, almost all things, he says, are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, he says, there is no remission. Without sacrifice, there could be no forgiveness for their sins. 
Now, the next item we would, we would encounter as we're progressing uh, westward, I guess, through the complex would be this bronze labor. And that's detailed in Exodus 30 and also talked about some in the preceding chapter and chapter 29 as well. And this laver would be where the priests, after offering sacrifice on the altar, where they would physically wash themselves uh, before putting on their priestly garments and then entering in to the holy place to conduct the necessary services there. So this was a large basin filled with clean water. Now, obviously, next we get to the holy place. The inner structure of the tabernacle was divided into two. The larger section, as you see there, is known as the holy place, and then the smaller section all the way to the west would be the most holy place or the holy of holies. There's different ways it's referred to. But the holy place, of course, again, is sectioned off. There's a doorway and a curtain. Uh, dividing it from the outer courtyard. And then, of course, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. We'll talk more about that as we go. I want us to come over to Hebrews chapter 9. Exodus 26 talks all about this holy place, how it was to be constructed, etc. Uh, but I want us to read what the Hebrew writer says about the holy place in Hebrews 9. We're going to look at just the first two verses there. We read that indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, and he says the first part, this holy place in other words, the first section, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread. Uh, it was called the sanctuary. And then he goes on to talk about the next section there, and we'll get to that in a moment. So, as you can see, there were three structures or three items that were contained in this holy place. There was an altar of incense, there was the table of showbread, and there was this lampstand, which had seven prongs that were lit. And that's what we'll talk about next here. Now, in addition to the description in Exodus 25, uh, we also can read about the lampstand in Leviticus chapter 24. We're not going to turn there and read that, but the important thing that we need to remember from what we read in Leviticus especially is that this lampstand was to always remain lit. As long as the tabernacle was erected and they weren't traveling somewhere, that lampstand was to be constructed and, and lit at all times. There were priests that had the specific duty of maintaining those candles there and making sure that they did not go out. That's going to be important as we make application of these things. The altar of incense is talked about in Exodus 30. Uh, they would offer a specific holy blend uh, of incense that God had outlined and described. It was only to be used in the service of the tabernacle. They couldn't just use it because it smelled nice in their homes. Uh, they would be condemned for that. 
And so it was a very special mix of different spices and things that they would use for that particular altar. And the final thing that we find, again, in the holy place is the table of showbread. And again, we see this detailed in Exodus, but also in Leviticus 24. And in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9, it talks about how they were to prepare this bread and, and so forth, how it was to be divided up, etc. Uh, but the important thing that we want to draw from that and remember, as is described there, is that this was to be a memorial for them. This bread served as a memorial, a reminder of God's provision, of his deliverance uh, from their bondage in Egypt, all of these things. That was the purpose of that showbread. It was for the priest to consume, again, as a memorial to remember the greatness of their God and his um, goodness towards them. And so we come to the Holy of Holies. And again, I referred to Leviticus 16 earlier. That whole chapter outlines that once a year uh, proceeding of the high priest, it was the only time that they would go into the Holy of Holies, was that once a year to make a special sacrifice, a special atonement for the sins of all the Israelites. And we're not going to read through that uh, with our time tonight. We are going to come back to Hebrews 9, though, and we had read the first two verses there, which briefly kind of summarized the holy place, and he continues now describing the holy of holies in verse 3. And so we'll read verses 3 through 5 and also notice verse 7. He says, Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In verse 7 he says, Into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So it's important that we remember the, these details because as we go into trying to think about, well, what does all this mean for us? Why do we care about this? You know, why are we looking at all these things? Uh, this seems like something I should never have to think about in my life today, right? But we're going to see how all of this applies to us and helps us understand certain things better. So as we begin to define, you know, what did these things represent? What were they shadows of? Well, the holy place, as we're going to see, was a shadow of the church itself, the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 16, we read here, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, 
says the Lord who does all of these things. Now, the quote there is from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. This was a prophecy that God spoke. And it was prophetic of the church, which would allow service to him, not just for the Jews as it had historically, but as he describes there, it's going to be erected again. It's going to be set up in a permanent sense, in a spiritual sense. And it's going to be something that draws all nations to me. Not just the Jew, but even all the Gentiles, as he says there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, here Paul is writing to the saints in Corinth. He's talking to Christians here, and he asks them a question in verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? Now again, the temple was what? It was the permanent version of what had been the tabernacle. It was designed and set up exactly the same way, obviously in a, a more grand, um, as far as the the dimensions and all of that, it was, it was far more grand, but it was designed exactly and laid out the same way. And so he's telling us, we are, as Christians, we are the temple of God. The church is the temple, in other words, that the Spirit of God dwells in. Verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So the church and the holy place correlate to one another. Now the courtyard is kind of interesting. You might think, well, the courtyard must then be the world. But if you really think about that, as I have in great detail, uh, you come to find that that really doesn't make a lot of sense because really the world would have been representative of what was outside the courtyard itself, what was completely foreign to this structure. And so the more I studied these things and you know read some different opinions and, and all of that, uh, I came to the conclusion that this courtyard would be representative of the gospel call. And that might not make sense right off the bat, but I think as we look at a couple things, it'll start to make sense. So how would this represent the gospel call or people being drawn ultimately towards service, priestly service in the church? Well, in Numbers chapter 3, we're not going to go back and read that, but in Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, it talks there about how the ones that could come into the courtyard and ultimately the holy place for the service of the tabernacle, it was restricted to just one tribe. Does anybody remember what tribe it was? Tribe of Levi, right? So if you weren't of the tribe of Levi, you were going to get in the big, into big trouble if you went in there, um, unless it was to bring an offering for uh, sacrifice on the altar. You couldn't just come in there and wander around or hang out or uh, do any kind of service for the structure or setting things up that was all reserved for the tribe of Levi. Now, not all of the tribe of Levi then were priests. Only some of them were priests. But the requirement was that even to be considered or to be able to serve as a priest, you had to first qualify from the tribe of Levi. So it's kind of like as you think about the tabernacle and you think about the different sections and the amount of people that would have been in each section, 
It just keeps narrowing down and uh, further down the, the deeper you go. So outside the tabernacle, you got all kinds of people, right? But then in the courtyard, you've just got Levites. Then inside the holy place, you've just got priests. And inside the holiest of holies, you just got one dude, right? He, just the, the high priest is the only one allowed to go in there. So it just keeps filtering down. Well, as you think about the world today, not everybody pays attention to the gospel, do they? Not everybody's even drawn initially to investigate what would ultimately look like service to God through obedience to Jesus Christ. So it's a filtering. The gospel is a filtering. It's a calling out of the world. And the interesting thing, of course, is that Christ has made it so that uh, it cannot just be reserved to one tribe of people, but as you read there in Revelation 5, he's made all tribes to come and investigate this. All nations, all peoples, and all have the opportunity, if they will listen to the gospel, to be drawn towards ultimately service and salvation, access to heaven itself and eternal life. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which, notice, He called you. How? How did He call them? How are people called? He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are people called to service before, physically, in the tabernacle? Well, it's by their tribe, by their physical lineage. But now we are called by the gospel. Now, there was one entrance as we start to think about the holy place and how a person would get in there or be allowed to go in there. First of all, there was just one way in. It's not like people could sneak around through the back door. <laughs> you had to go in through the one entrance. Well, again, that lines up perfectly with the church. The way to God, the way to salvation, how many are there? Just one. And what is that way? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes or comes to the Father except through me. We know on other occasions he described himself as the door, right? Well, he's the entrance. We have to go through him. Well, how do we get in there, though? Well, we have to think about these other things that we would encounter. Remember, as we walked through that complex, the first thing we came to was this altar, this altar uh, that they would offer these sacrifices on. And that's something they did daily. It's something that they had the yearly atonement for all the people. Uh, they would use that altar. What was all that representative of? Well, it's ultimately foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. That's the first thing. You, you think about, well, is this design that God laid out for all these structures, is that just random? Just, eh, put that over there, I guess that'll work. <laughs> no, he, he had a very specific purpose behind why this was all laid out. It was to illustrate a path that a person would take to ultimately reach God. The first thing 
had to be the sacrifice to cleanse us because God is holy and He cannot dwell with that which is evil. And when we sin, we, we sever ourselves from Him. Now thinking about Jesus as this sacrifice, we know in John 1.29, John described Jesus there as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would that have significance to a Jew? Well, because they understood that lambs were used as sacrifices, right? To make atonement for their sins. John is saying, this is the lamb that God has provided, his very son. In Hebrews chapter 7, and verse 26, we read there, such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, He's become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, notice this, Jesus does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. So the sacrifice now, the perfect sacrifice has been made. There's no more need to continue to offer animals on the altar. Because Jesus' blood is perfect in atoning for all of us. In 1 Peter 1, verse 17, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, he says, as, notice again the reference, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, sometimes we read these things in the New Testament and we, we fail to appreciate, well, that's referring back to all that stuff with the tabernacle, with the sacrifices, with the temple. It's all pointing back to that. And when we understand how that system worked, we can appreciate everything that, that Jesus has done. And we understand it. It makes sense. Now, the next thing again that we would encounter as we pass by the altar and have offered the appropriate sacrifice, we'd come to that laver. It's necessary now that we wash ourselves. And that would correlate for us to being baptized. Not only do we become cleansed, now for them it was a physical cleansing, they would physically remove dirt from themselves, from their bodies, but they also would put on then their priestly garments to go in and, and serve. And so baptism accomplishes both of those things. We're cleansed of our sins. And as we're going to see here, we put on something too, don't we? We put on Christ. You see how that all works? Acts 2 verse 38, of course, we know Peter told them there to repent, be baptized for the remission, the cleansing, the washing away of their sins. Acts 22.16, Ananias told Saul to arise, be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Read with me here. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, he's talking about us, we now have this boldness, this ability to enter in to that holiest of holies, a representation of heaven itself, access to God, we might say. How? By or through the blood of Jesus. 
by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. Remember, there was the veil that separated the two. Jesus has gone through the veil. That is, his flesh, he says, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Notice our bodies washed with pure water. Kind of makes sense to us then why Peter would interject what he did in 1 Peter 3, verse 21. We refer to that verse a lot, especially when we're talking about the necessity of baptism. It tells us there that there's something that now saves us. Well, what is that? It's baptism. But then you notice Peter says, this is not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Why would he need to say that? Well, because the washing that the Old Testament priests went through was for the removal of filth from the flesh. He says this is not for that, but rather this is a spiritual washing away of our sins. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we're baptized, many of us as we're baptized into Christ, notice what we put on. We put on Christ. We're now wearing a new garment. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, speaking to Christians, he says, Since you've done all of these things, as is the implied meaning, you're now a chosen generation. You are a royal, notice, priesthood. for priests. So we're not, we're not any longer just interested. We're not just wandering around in this complex kind of curious. Well, we heard this call and we heard about these things and what does all this mean? Now we've actually taken the steps to become the priesthood. So now we can enter in to the church, the holy place, for service to God. We become a holy nation, his own special people, to proclaim his praises. We enter the tabernacle, the church, to serve. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us there that we are his workmanship. Speaking of Christians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, for service, for obedience that will bring glory to our God. So Jesus died not just to cleanse us, but to put us to use, in other words, to allow us to fulfill the reason we were made, which is to serve God and to bring Him glory by doing things that are pleasing and right in His eyes. So now that we're inside the holy place, if you will, we've, we've understood what all these things represent how one would get inside the church, the body. Again, we think about what was inside that holy place. There were those three things, remember? The altar of incense, which we're going to talk about first. You had the showbread, and then you had the lamp. So the altar of incense would be representative of righteousness, or the practice of righteousness. It goes up before God as a sweet-smelling savor, just as that incense did in a physical way in the tabernacle of old. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Notice what we read here. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering 
and a sacrifice to God, notice, for a sweet-smelling aroma. You know, if you don't understand any of this stuff from the Old Testament, you read that and you think, well, did it smell good when Jesus died on the cross? I mean, I don't understand. What does that mean, right? It almost seems creepy in a way. But when you understand all of these things, all these patterns from the Old Testament and the things of the tabernacle, you understand, ah, that correlates to that. So in other words, what he's saying here is the pattern that Jesus laid down for us, this walking in love, this walking in righteousness, ultimately was to God this sweet-smelling aroma, the sweet-smelling savor, reminiscent of what they would offer in service to God on that altar in the holy place. Hebrews 13 and verse 15 says, Therefore by him, through Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so as we are living sacrifices, Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2, we are, in essence, the realization of what that altar of incense was a shadow of. The lampstand, that's kind of an easy one, isn't it? What would the lampstand represent? Well, that would represent the light of truth, the light of God's word. God's word is light. It shows us where to go, how to walk, how to live. And we must make sure, just as those physical priests did, that that light is always shining, right? We don't let that lamp go out. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. 2 John 9 says, Whoever transgresses does not abide in the doctrine of Christ or the teaching of Christ does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And so it brings to mind the idea that as we dwell in the light of the teaching of Christ, we abide by that, then we are in communion with not only God, but Christ and the Holy Spirit. We are in union with them. We have that relationship with them. Of course, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus reminds us that we're the light of the world, right? We're like that city that's up on a hill that is shining as a beacon. Uh, we are meant to draw people to their God. Now, the showbread also is another one that when, especially when you notice those key details in its description, like I pointed out earlier, in Leviticus 24, where in talking about this showbread, it explains that it was a memorial for them. Well, what is our memorial? Well, it's also bread, isn't it? And it's the bread that Jesus instituted as a memorial to his body, and of course the fruit of the vine as a memorial to his blood. Acts 20 and verse 7 tells us, On the first day of the week, the saints were assembled together to break bread. In reference, of course, to this memorial. Paul uh, gives us some detail and explanation, reminds us uh, of these things that we, of course, have originally contained in the gospel accounts. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also had delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this or observe this in remembrance of me. 
the same manner, he also took the cup. After supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there's so much more you could dive into just with that alone as you think about the Passover, which was also a type of this memorial that we observe today. And you think about how the Israelites were physically delivered from bondage in Egypt. We, spiritually, through Christ, are delivered from bondage of sin. So, I mean, these, these correlations, it's not just isolated to the tabernacle. It, it, it runs throughout the Old Testament. But we're not going to get into all that right now, because we don't have time. Now, as we again think about the next thing along the way there, there was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And what happened when Jesus died? The veil was rent from top to bottom. It's the way it's described in Mark's account, Mark 15, verse how, 37. How big was that veil? I don't remember, but it was large. It was huge. <laughs> it was like two stories tall. Right, right. I actually meant to look that up. You reminded me, but I failed to. So you can do that on your own time. And then tell all of us. <laughs> but yes, that is an important point to mention. Now, the one in the tabernacle obviously would be much uh, smaller, but the one that was ultimately in the temple was, yes, very, very tall. And so it being torn from top to bottom was very significant. But we read there in Mark 15, verse 37, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And as he did so, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you might think, well, what was the point of that? You know, why include that detail? Why did that happen? Well, if you don't understand the tabernacle, you don't understand the temple and how those things uh, relate, then it's rather insignificant, isn't it? But when you understand that again, what did the holy of holies represent? Represented heaven. Nobody could go in there except the, the high priest once a year. But now Jesus dies and this veil is rent. It's representative of the fact that, hey, access to God is now open for us all. He has become our high priest. Let's look here in Hebrews 9 once again. And let's look at verse 11 beginning. It says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, as that old one was, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Notice he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is mediator, again, of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's a, that's a key verse. You might put a star by that verse 15. Because 
it shows there that the reason that all the service of the old law and, and all that the Israelites did, because the point is made throughout the book of Hebrews that, you know, those sacrifices couldn't really atone for sin. I mean, they, they ultimately didn't satisfy what was necessary to be satisfied. So then why did they do it? Well, because again, everything was ultimately pointing to what Jesus would do. And when Jesus died, his blood not only allowed their service to count, their faith to count, and to be qualification for actual forgiveness. Uh, in other words, it went forward in time and it went backwards in time as well. And that's what that verse is talking about. So put a note there to yourself uh, so that you can use that in your studies. Now, also Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it says there, this hope we have uh, as an anchor of the soul, the hope of heaven, both sure and steadfast. And notice it is that which enters the presence, referencing God. Notice where this presence is. It's behind the veil. We have access to God where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so, as we've already identified, the Holy of Holies was a representation of heaven. And again, what was in that Holy of Holies? It was where the ark was kept. What was in the ark? Well, we read earlier, you may have uh, noticed it, talked about a couple different things that were inside that ark. Obviously, the, the law was kept there, but also there was manna that was kept in there. There was the staff of Aaron that had budded. And really, all of that reminds us and points us and gets us thinking about Jesus Christ. The staff, of course, as you think about what a staff was used for historically, especially in that region where the Israelites dwelt, they were shepherds, weren't they? Staff was a symbol of authority, a symbol of guidance, protection for the sheep. It would be reminiscent of the fact that we have Jesus Christ as our high priest and our advocate before God. Turn back there to 1 John chapter 2. First couple of verses, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the atonement for our sins and not for ours, but for, uh, but also for the whole world. Back in Hebrews 4, verse 14, talking about Jesus again here, seeing that we have a great High priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So again, He is our access, He is our guidance, He is our protection. He is our bread. John 6, 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And if you remember in the context of 
where he says that. He's having a discussion with the people there, and he's talking about the manna that was provided to the Israelites in their wanderings in the wilderness, you remember? And he makes a statement there in that speech where he says, this was not the bread from heaven, which to them, they were probably thinking, well, what does that mean? It, yes, it was, <laughs> right? It came from God in heaven. But his point was, I am the true bread from heaven. Not that you're going to literally consume my body, but you're going to consume my words. You're going to consume what I teach you and follow it and live by it. And it's going to give you something greater than earthly sustenance. It's going to give you eternal spiritual life. And finally, as we think about the tablets of the old covenant that were kept there in that ark, ultimately would come to represent what we are under today, the new and better covenant that Jesus established. Let's come again to Hebrews chapter 8. and We had read the first six verses at the very beginning of our lesson. Let's pick up there in verse 7. It says there that if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is now ready, he says, to vanish away. And ultimately that, all, that old uh, covenant system, that temple service and all those things that were uh, in connection with that was, was put to an end. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. All the records were lost. And God made it a permanent end to that old system now that he had established his perfect and new covenant. That's it. I'm not going to make you read any more scripture tonight, unless you want to. So, there's a lot there to digest. There's a lot there to think about. And I hope that as we've looked at it together tonight, it's hopefully made some things clearer uh, maybe some connections that you hadn't made before have been made now, and some things are easier to understand. Uh, but it's a it's a very interesting study, and and I hope that you've been benefited by it tonight. If there's anyone here that is in need, whether to render obedience to Christ tonight through confession of their belief in Him, repentance of their sins, and baptism for the forgiveness and remission of those sins, to walk in a newness of life, or whether you need prayers tonight, we would invite you to make those things known at this time that we've designated. If you have a need, please come to the front while we stand and while we sing.